Oh man, uh, that that scene is one of my favorite. And, and the reason why I show it today is, is not just so we can laugh together, uh, but this very thing happened to me a few years back, and it happened by accident. And I was working at Suncor, and we were in the middle of a turnaround. And a turnaround is just basically when they shut down some of the plant so that they can do like intense maintenance on it. So they hire thousands of extra employees. Things get crazy and very busy. And so what our fire hall used to do is they would put a, a firefighter down in the plant for the duration of the turnaround to do inspections and to make people feel safe and to be seen. And uh, that was my job. So for the duration of the turnaround, I had an office down in the plant and it was a very easy job. Uh, and so one night, after all of my work was done, uh, it, it was about uh, two in the morning. So I went to my office and I closed the door and I put my feet up and I closed my eyes and I began to pray. After a few hours of praying, there was a knock on the door, to which I scrambled to the door, uh, and I tried to wipe the prayer out of my eyes, and I opened the door, and it was the vice president of upgrading. It was obvious that I had been praying, and so he promptly reported me to the chief. Here's the kicker. The name he, he used to report me, he used the name that was written on my coveralls. And that night, I was not wearing my coveralls. I was wearing my buddy BJ's coveralls. And so the next day, BJ got pulled into the chief's office and a, a strip tore off of him. And he was, needless to say, he was very confused about why he was getting in trouble. Now, as soon as I found out, I went up to the chief's office and I fessed up, oh, that was me. And luckily by that point, he was all yelled out. And so he just told me to get out of his face. Being accused of something that isn't true doesn't feel good. Being judged wrongly is painful. Last week, we talked a bit about judgment. We looked at the words of Jesus when he told the people uh, during the Sermon on the Mount that he told them, do not judge. We talked about how when we judge people, we end up putting them in this box and we label it sinner and failure and broken. And, and especially that happens especially when we judge people who are not Jesus followers. Um, we also talked about how when you decide that you don't have to correct everybody who's wrong on Facebook, it can be extremely liberating, right? There's a freedom that comes when you don't have to correct people who are wrong. Uh, well, last week we put an ad out on Facebook promoting our judgment message. You may have seen it. It said this. It's up on the screen. Jesus said, do not judge. So why is it that so many of us get that wrong? If you're the kind of person who avoids going to church because you say you might burst in the flames at the front door, this Sunday is for you. And don't worry we will have a few extra fire extinguishers at the entrance just in case. Right? So we're trying to tell people, like, we, we're not going to judge you. And uh, so we had a couple of people who really disagreed strongly with our stance on judgment. Uh, first, we had someone basically tell us that we were totally wrong, that Jesus was extremely judgmental. Uh, I think... It sounds like he does not go to church anywhere, that he doesn't subscribe to any sort of faith. And so I have a little bit of grace for that guy. Uh, some Christian somewhere probably gave him the impression of Jesus that he has. It's not his fault that he has the impression of Christians as being 
judging. And honestly, I would have loved for him to have come to church last week and hear a different story. Now, all the way on the other side of the spectrum, we also had a Christian guy comment on there, and he thought we weren't judgy enough. Basically, that we needed to be more willing to bring the hammer down on those pesky sinners. Now, he probably means well, but I kind of hope he stays at whatever church he's going to and doesn't come to this church. You can't please everybody, but I'm not so sure what it means when you don't please anybody. Uh, But yeah, we'll, we'll try harder with our ads. When someone gets the wrong opinion of you, when you get judged, especially wrongly, it doesn't feel good. And that is exactly what is happening to Jesus at the start of today's Jesus story. So Luke is the guy who wrote it all down so that we could read about it and know about it. And right off the bat, he tells us at the start of this story that the religious people are passing judgment on Jesus. And we're going to read a whole, lot of, a whole lot of this story today, so let's just dive in. Luke 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners. And he eats with them. That's the start of today's story. They're judging him. They're being snarky. They didn't like the company that he was keeping. No respectable Jew would be caught hanging out with sinners. No rabbi would be caught dead hanging out with scum like that. These religious folks were passing some serious judgment on Jesus here. And and this isn't the point of today's message, but I I just want to say it really quickly uh, because I think it's worth mentioning. You know who liked hanging out with Jesus? Sinners. And you know who Jesus liked hanging out with? Sinners. They actually enjoyed hanging out with him. They enjoyed being around him. They were always inviting them to their homes for parties. And whatever Jesus was doing, however he was doing it, he was doing it in a way that made people want to spend more time with them. So what are we doing now? How are we acting? How are we treating people that makes them want to spend more time with us? It's a question worth pondering, but not today. Let's move on. So, Luke tells us that the religious people are judging him for the company that he keeps, which sets the stage for one of the most famous stories that Jesus ever told. See, everyone is gathered around, right? It's, a, it's probably a bigger crowd than what we've got in the room today, probably substantially bigger. Uh, but So that means there's all kinds in the crowd. There's tax collectors who were reviled, there's drunks and gluttons, and there's Pharisees and religious people too. And Jesus knew how to work a diverse crowd. He was a master storyteller. He could draw you in, he could take down your defenses, and then he could bring home his point with incredible clarity. So he starts with a story that most everybody on the hillside that day would understand, that they could relate to. He tells them, Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And everyone's thinking, well, yeah, of course we would, Jesus. That sheep is valuable, and, and, and the others will be fine while we go find the lost sheep. That was easy. And Jesus goes on. 
Because suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? Yeah, yeah, of course, Jesus. You look for what's lost, especially money. That stuff doesn't grow on trees, you know. And at this point, I, I, I bet you the Pharisees are licking their lips because they loved money, and, and they're saying, I'm going to find that coin, right? They, they, they know they're going to find what's lost. And this is all a setup, of course, because you look for what's lost. Of course you care for things that are valuable. Jesus has them leaning in because they think they're so smart. Jesus has them engaged in listening, and then he continues. There was a man who had two sons. And the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so he did, divided his property between them. And I, I guarantee that as soon as Jesus said these lines, that the atmosphere changed in the room. That no one listening would have thought that what this son was asking was okay. A young son asking for his inheritance while his father was alive would be such a terrible insult, especially in that first century culture. A terrible request by a selfish and entitled child. The son is clearly the bad guy in this story. Jesus went on. Not long after that, after he got his inheritance, the younger son got together all he had. He set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. Oh, he did what? The Pharisees would be chomping at the bit here. This kid took his dad's money, went to a foreign land where nobody would question what he was doing. He could do whatever he wanted, and he wasted it all on live, wild living, food, wine, and sex. He partied it up for as long as he could. Jesus continued. Now, after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Now, I, the Pharisees at this part of the story are high-fiving each other. This kid is getting what he deserves. This was his bed, and he deserves to lie in it. And I think Jesus really wanted this part of the story to sting, and that's why he included the part about the pigs. Jews would have been appalled at the idea of working with pigs. In their culture, they didn't eat pork because it was unclean. Yet here this kid is hanging out with the pigs, and he is so hungry that he wants to eat their food. He's starving. He's out of money. And he is alone. And the crowd is right where Jesus wants them. He goes on. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. You know, sometimes it takes hitting rock bottom for us before we change. Sometimes you have to have nothing left before you learn what it is that you need. He screwed up. He went too far. He hurt everyone who had ever loved him. He betrayed his family and his people, and he deserved everything that he, that he got. And at this point in the story, I think the crowd listening to Jesus tell the story divided into two camps. There were those that, thinks the son, that would think that the son deserved to be rejected by his father, 
And then there was that camp who knew what it felt like to be rejected. The Pharisees are thinking, there's no way the father is going to forgive this kid. He doesn't deserve it. And even if the father does let him come home, he won't make it easy. The kid will have to work himself back. He's going to have to earn it, put in his time. They are totally expecting the father to kick this son while he's down. And the others listening on the hillside that day expect something different. The sinners, the outcasts, the, one with, the ones with history, they think they know what's coming. Rejection. Because they know it all too well. People don't forgive people like them. They judge them. They keep them on the edges. They aren't family. They aren't accepted. They are totally expecting the father to reject the son because they've been rejected before. And there's a tension in the air. Everyone is leaning in. And I feel like Jesus allowed this moment in the story to kind of linger just a bit. The trap had been set and it was ready to be sprung. Jesus breaks the silence and he says, talking about the son, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and kissed him. What? No one was expecting this. Not the Pharisees, not the ones who had been rejected. The father saw his son and was immediately overwhelmed with compassion. He overflowed with love. And the son, he tried to spit out his apology that he had rehearsed over and over again. Father, I have sinned against heaven, against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the dad, the father cuts him off before he can finish. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. See, the crowd listening to this story is shocked. Pharisees are shaking their heads. People turn to each other with looks of disbelief on their face. No one saw this coming. In a society that placed a high value on the law of retaliation, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, this was way outside their cultural norms. Total forgiveness total redemption, total pardon. No rejection, no condemnation, no judgment, just acceptance. And Jesus wasn't done because this was a one-two punch. And sensing the Pharisees' disappointment with the way he took his story, he said this, Meanwhile, the older son was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. You see, this older brother is the good one. The one who stayed, the one who was faithful to his father, the one who never faltered. But now he became angry. How could his father treat his brother this way? How could he forget everything that this kid did to him? He became bitter. And he said this to his dad, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Man, bitterness is just ugly. 
The father answers. He says, my son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because your brother, this brother of yours, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And there it is. Being lost doesn't change the value of something. Being lost makes finding that thing more important. Being lost doesn't make you worthless. It makes you worth it. Jesus had come for the lost ones. He came for the rejected, the misplaced, the pushed aside. He came for the poor and the sick. He came for the judged and the broken. He came for the ones who were living outside the boundaries of what we appreciate or like, for the marginalized and the forgotten. He came for the lost because they still had value. They still mattered. They were still worth it. So a question worth asking is who are we in this story? And who are you in this story? Some of us are the prodigal son. We've run from God. We've wasted his good gifts that he's given to us. We've lost ourselves in sin and shame and guilt that seems to run deep in many of us. Maybe you feel like you've gone too far, like you've made too many mistakes. There's no way God can love you. There's no place in church for you. You're too broken. But Paul, was convinced that you're wrong. He said it this way, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height or depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing you can do can disqualify you from receiving the love of God. Nowhere you've been, nothing you've said, no mistake you've made makes you unfindable. This morning, your Father in heaven, the creator of all things, is ready for you to come to him. He's ready for you to take that first step down the road towards him. He is waiting for you to reach out. And if you, if you do, he won't hesitate a moment. He will run towards you and embrace you unconditionally and welcome you home. Some of us in this story, though, are like the bitter brother. We've been doing okay. And we attend church, we give, and we volunteer. We're pretty satisfied with our lives, and we we do a good job. We don't have many non-Christian friends. And we want the church preaching to make us feel good. We want the music to be our style. We're the ones holding this place together. Don't we deserve some recognition? Here's the thing. We are the 99. And if we want to reflect the heart of God to the world around us, then our goal should be to reach the one. To reach out past ourselves and into the lives of our neighbors, into the lives of our co-workers, and to set aside our wants and our needs and serve our community with humility and love. And whoever you are in this story, the message is clear. That there is room for everyone at the Father's table. At this point, I'm going to invite the worship team to come back. And in a few minutes, we're, we're going to take communion together. Uh, but just as I finish, one, one of the greatest uh, 
pranks that I was ever a part of happened a few years ago uh, at the fire hall. And it was something very simple, but so diabolical. Uh, we waited till one of the guys was in the shower, uh, in the locker room, and we were going to throw flour on him. You know, classic. You know, great prank. Uh, and so we waited till he was in the shower, and then the four of us snuck in to the change room, and we convinced the new guy to pull out his phone and to hide in the locker and to record the whole thing, right? So we could put it on Facebook or something. Here's, here's the thing. Um, the prank wasn't on the shower guy. The prank was on the new guy. Because after he set up and started recording, the rest of us just left the room. And so when the guy in the shower came out of the shower naked, the new guy was there filming him. (laughs) It's awkward. It's awkward. The new guy thought he was in on the joke, but he was the joke. And when we read this story, the prodigal son, it's kind of easy for us to miss something very important. When we read it, we get busy putting ourselves into the story, thinking that we're part of it. It's, it's, it's just the human condition. It's just the way our brain works. Everything we see is about us. We empathize with the son. We see our mistakes as his mistakes. We identify with his shame and his struggles. But while this story is centered around the son, it's not really about him. It's actually about the Father. It's about the incredible, outrageous, and reckless love of the Father. Now, the word prodigal is a weird one. It basically means wasteless, or wasteful, or or reckless, extravagantly wasteful. This story is called the prodigal son because the son squandered everything. He wasted it all. But I think just as easily, this story could be titled, The Prodigal Father. He gave his son his inheritance before his son had ever earned it or deserved it. He gave of himself to an ungrateful and disrespectful child. It was not a wise investment, but he did not care. He gave him everything and more, abundantly more than he could ever deserve. The father was reckless with his love. And then after the son returned empty-handed, having lost it all, broken and destitute, the father gives him even more. He gives him a home again and food to eat and clothes for his back. And this, this is big. He gave him a seat at his table, a place of honor. Welcomed home, he poured out his love on him. He lavished him with grace and compassion. His joy overflowed. You guys, this is the story of our Heavenly Father. This is the story of how God and of all creation is willing and wants to lavishly pour out his love into your life. And his desire to do that has nothing to do with what you've done, good or bad. It's not about you earning it. It's not about you deserving it. It's actually not about you at all. It's about him. God is love. And he loves you in a way that seems foolish. It seems wasteful. It seems over the top. Paul described it this way. It's so good. He said, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. His love for us is the power of God. To someone who has experienced it, the love of God seems irrational. 
to someone on the outside looking into what we're talking about, the love of God seems ridiculous. But God loves in a way that seems like foolishness to the world. He ignores all of our social norms and expectations, and he loves unconditionally. In another place, Paul put it this way. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, while we were still lost, knowing that some of us would choose to ignore him, to stay lost, knowing that some of us would choose not to accept his gift of love, knowing that we would never be able to earn it or deserve it, Christ went to the cross and he paid for our sins with his life and he invited us to his table. This morning we're going to take communion together. And if you don't know what that is, that's okay. Let me tell you. Almost 2,000 years ago, Jesus sat at a table with some of his closest friends and they shared a meal. They talked and they laughed and they enjoyed themselves. And that that night Jesus broke bread and he poured wine and he told everyone in the room that night to do it again in remembrance of me. Do this so you never forget. When you eat this bread, remember that I love you so much that I came looking for you. When you drink this wine, remember that my love for you cannot be contained. And this morning we've set a table here at the front with bread and juice, a table where each one of us has a seat of honor. A table where we remember the reckless love of God who would give his life on a cross so that we could do this together. And this morning, if you had never taken your seat at the communion table before, I want to invite you this morning to do it for the first time. Let this be a moment you accept his unbelievable gift of love. Let this be the moment that you come running home into the waiting arms of your Father in heaven. Let this be the moment you go from being lost to being found. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Oh, it chases me down. It fights till I'm found. It leaves the 99. I couldn't earn it, and I don't deserve it still. You gave yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for your sacrifice that you made so many years ago. A sacrifice that bought us a seat at your table. A sacrifice that made us a way for us to be part of your family, to be sons and daughters of the God Most High. And Father God, I pray that this morning in this room or watching online, if there is anybody who has wandered off anybody who feels lost, anybody who feels like they've gone too far, too far past where you can love them, where you can reach for them, too far past where you are willing to go to find them, that those people would know today by your Holy Spirit that they are never beyond your reach and that you will never stop looking for them. 
Jesus, teach us what it means that you love us unconditionally. Let judgment and condemnation and fear wash away this morning. Let us come to this table knowing that there is a seat of honor for us in it. Pray this in your holiest of names. Amen.